0: Tonight we come to Second Peter, and so if you would take your Bible, turn with me to Second Peter, and the text that we will look at following our survey of the background material is the last verses of this book, uh, Second Peter chapter three, verses fourteen through eighteen. And I do believe these verses capture well the thrust of Second Peter, a wonderful book that uh, challenges us to have hope and also warns us of the danger of false teaching. We'll see. Uh, Next uh, week uh, or the week after that, uh, this book has quite a bit in common with the book of Jude, uh, especially certain sections, almost verbatim in terms of the warnings that are given. But in verse 14 of chapter three, we read, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless." And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles speaking in them of things, these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter, as you see on the very first page of your notes, is said to be authored by the Apostle Peter. That is the declaration of the book. It was written probably in A.D. 65, 66. We'll expand upon that in a moment. Probably like First Peter from the city of Rome. And as you look at the book itself, only three chapters, they really, I think, you could summarize are four purposes for which this book was written One from chapter 3 One from chapter 2 And two from chapter 1 First of all he writes to challenge the readers To grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ You will notice that that theme Is not only in the first chapter It is also in the conclusion of the letter as well Secondly he reaffirms the truthfulness And the trustworthiness of The prophetic word of God And indeed three classic texts That you find concerning the inspiration of the Bible uh, One is found in 2nd Peter, the other being Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, the view of Jesus concerning the Bible, 2nd uh, Timothy 3, 14 through 17, the view of Paul concerning the Bible. And then here in 2nd Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, more precisely, Peter's view of the inspiration of the Bible. And then that is not surprising that that leads thirdly to warnings of the danger of false teachers and their destructive doctrines. And then finally, to encourage watchfulness and steadfastness in light of our Lord's certain return, his certain coming again. So if you look at page two, and I've again, as I've always done, provided a structural chart for you uh, of the overall purpose statement, combining those four ideas to warn against false teaching, doctrinal error and moral compromise as we live in the last days. Key words in the text, the Lord Jesus Christ, his full majestic title recurs or occurs repeatedly throughout the book. Uh, the emphasis upon knowledge is very strong in second Peter. He's very concerned that you think rightly and not wrongly, that you think correctly and not incorrectly. And then he also speaks of diligence. Uh, the destruction that is coming for the wicked and the unbelieving He is very tender, very pastoral Using the word beloved uh, Loved ones repeatedly throughout the book And since the emphasis falls upon knowledge You also find an emphasis falling upon remembering Being reminded And that enabling you to escape the corruption That is in this present world And that is promoted by the false teachers So the tone of the book is urgent uh, It's intense And also, there is a strong word of encouragement as well. If you were then to break down the three chapters, you can see I put three questions in there. Chapter 1, how can I grow in godliness? Chapter 2, how can I recognize false prophets? Chapter 3, how will it all end? And in essence, the warnings that I give also are the answers to those questions. How can I grow in godliness? Well, you need to add to your faith. If you do, you will never stumble. Secondly, how can I recognize false prophets? Well, know the truth. And if you do, God will deliver you from false prophets. Thirdly, how will it all end? Well, very interestingly, he says, be diligent. It's almost the same words that Jesus gave to the disciples in Acts chapter one, when they said, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom? And he says, bottom line, that's not your concern. Rather, you're to be what? Witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So how will it all end? The Bible says you just be diligent and rest in the hope that Jesus is coming again. And so in essence, we see that chapter 1 says, look within. Chapter two says look back and chapter three says look ahead. And so there's a really comprehensive approach to the Christian life that you find in this short letter of second Peter. Now move to the introduction and you'll say, my goodness, why well, you've got a whole page and some on the issue of authorship. That is correct. Because if you've ever gone to a Bible college taking a class in religion, perhaps surveying the New Testament, you will know that no book is assailed and criticized as to its authenticity by modern liberal scholarship like the book of Second Peter. We saw earlier that liberal scholarship is very skeptical, that Paul wrote the pastorals, First and Second Timothy and uh, Titus, but you will hardly find anyone at all, uh, in a mainline denomination or in a secular institution that teaches religion that believes that Peter indeed was the author of Second Peter. Almost unanimously, they rejected And so we're going to look at it in a little bit more detail, as well as inform you of some other books that had some questions raised about them as well. So, top of the page. Simon Peter is the stated author of this letter. That is what is said in chapter 1, verse 1. Furthermore, this affirmation is supported by the text of the epistle by at least five evidences. Number one, the use of the first person pronoun in the context of Jesus' prediction of his death. The person sounds like they were there when he said this. Secondly, and this is very strong, the claim to be an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus in chapter one as well. Number three, the acknowledgement in chapter three, verse one to his readers that this is his second letter, which would seem to imply first Peter preceding second Peter and being written by both uh, uh, both letters being written by the same person. Fourthly, his references to Paul as our beloved brother and fifthly, his honest admission. That in Paul's letters are some things hard to understand. You say, what does that mean? Well, think of it. If Peter did not write 2 Peter, you wrote it. You're a false writer, but you want to use Peter's name because you know that will get your book in circulation. Having Peter's name attached to this letter is better than having your name attached to it. Well, do you want to make Peter look good or bad? Well, you want to make Peter look good. And yet the guy that wrote Second Peter said, Look, I gotta throw up my hands and say, sometimes Paul, when he writes, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. I mean that rascal is tough. Uh, that guy says some things that are hard to understand. Well, no, you would want to make Peter sound like, Oh, I've got Paul mastered. Why, well, he's nothing. I've got you know, but no, he acknowledges some of the things that Paul writes I myself find difficult. Well that sounds like a very honest uh admission of the person who actually wrote the book itself, furthermore, I want to put a little star by this one. it's in my notes. External evidence for the authenticity of Second Peter exists, though it must be admitted it is not as strong as it is for the first letter. In other words, when you look at early church history, is there really strong, virtually unanimous uh, argument and evidence that Peter wrote first Peter? Yes. Second Peter is not the same. In fact, in the early church, there were some people that raised some questions about Second Peter. And so we have to be honest and acknowledge that in the first three, four centuries of the church, there were some persons that really weren't sure whether or not Second Peter really was written by Peter. Now, First Clement, circa AD 95, the Didache, approximately AD 100, may, you need to underline the word may, may allude to it, though we cannot be dogmatic. In the late 2nd and early 3rd century, support for its canonicity, which means its inclusion in the Holy Scriptures, grows. Though, again, some doubted its genuineness. And so the ancient uh, church history father, the father of church history, Eusebius, and you note know, his dates now are 3rd and early 4th century. Eusebius classified the book as, and here's a $25 word for you, anti-legomena. Are disputed. In other words, Eusebius says, whereas no one ever questioned the authenticity of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and so on, uh, there were those who questioned whether or not these books actually belonged in our New Testament. And Second Peter was one of them. We saw earlier, and I think I taught you the word "antilegomena" then, Hebrews was questioned. I know I mentioned it with James was questioned. Second and third John were questioned. Jude was questioned and Revelation was questioned. Now, again, why did they question Hebrews? They were not sure who the author was. Why did they question James? Some people, even in the early church, thought James was in conflict with Paul, perhaps in some doctrinal areas, and it was too Jewish, overly Jewish. Second and third John, we will see next week, were questioned because they were not widely circulated. They're very short. Some people, even to this day would argue that everything that's in Second John you find in first John, everything in third John you find in First John. In fact, many times you'll have a preacher who will preach through First John and he will ignore Second and third John. In fact, uh, right now, <clears throat> I'm writing the study guide material for first, Second, and third John, which is going to be the January Bible study or the midwinter Bible study in the year 2007. Well, initially, when I received my assignment, I was given outlines of 1 John 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And yet they said, we're going to study the epistles of John. So I wrote them back and I said, well, you've uh, misspoken because you're not talking about 2 John, you're not talking about 3 John. Might I make a suggestion that you actually include 2nd and 3rd John, which, by the way, if you go back and look in the history of Southern Baptists, anytime 1st John has ever been the study book for the Midwinter Bible study, they did not study 2nd and 3rd John. Well, this time they're going to, and 2nd and 3rd John will be included in the Midwinter Bible study. But my point, again, is that these books were small, they were not widely circulated, so they even got shortchanged in the early church. Just like they continue to get shortchanged in the contemporary church as well. Jude, uh Jude quotes uh non canonical, apocryphal stories, and that causes some people some nervousness. And then Revelation, you know, who can understand that book? And so even in the early church, there were those who said this book is too difficult to understand and therefore it likewise was challenged. And then some even questioned whether or not John the Apostle was the author of that uh, book because there were at least two and maybe three alleged Johns in the early church. We'll talk about that when we get to Revelation. So back to Second Peter. By the end of the 4th century, the epistle was generally accepted by the vast majority of the Christian church. But realize that's 300 years later. Modern critical scholars, though, have attacked this book more than any other in the New Testament as to its authenticity. Indeed, they have judged it as, and here's a $50 word, pseudepigraphic, which means a false writing, i.e., it's a forgery. In other words, it has Peter's name attached to it, but Peter did not write it. Furthermore, they argued that it, uh, the content of the book would indicate it was written well after the time of Peter's death. The early church was almost unanimous in its uh, affirmation that Peter was crucified. Well, he was crucified upside down. Uh, in the latter part of the reign of Nero, thus putting it somewhere between 65 and 68, Nero commits suicide in A.D. 68. So Peter is dead. They argue this book was written later than that, maybe even into the early part of the second century. Obviously, then Peter could not have been the author. Most skeptical scholars then do not wish to remove the book from its authoritative place in Holy Scripture, though some do. But they will argue that the style and vocabulary of 2 Peter is so different from that of 1 Peter that it simply rules out a common author. Indeed, some believe the difference is to be so significant that if the two letters had been anonymous, no one would have ever thought to attribute them to a common authorship. So how might we respond to these allegations and questions by more liberal, skeptical scholars? Well, first of all, we want to be honest. There is indeed a difference in style between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. In the Greek text especially, they are not the same. They're they're, they're very different. Uh, 1 Peter reads very smoothly. 2 Peter is tough. It, It is rough. In other words, whoever penned 1 Peter sure seems like they had a great control of the Greek language. Whoever wrote Second Peter was a little bit more rough, not quite as uh, careful, and not quite as gifted in terms of their writing style. Well, we also don't need to acknowledge this, and most liberal scholars do not. The real difference is not really between First and Second Peter. The real difference is between both First and Second Peter and the rest of the New Testament. In other words, the fact is no other book is like 1 Peter as, or is as much like 1 Peter as 2 Peter with the possible exception of Jude. And as I mentioned a moment ago, there are common materials between Jude, especially uh, 2 Peter 2 and Jude. And so there are some similarities between Jude and 2 Peter. But if you step back and said, all right, all things being equal, what book is more like 2 Peter than any other book in the New Testament? Well, the answer would be 1 Peter. And so though they are significantly different, they're more alike than any of the other writings of the New Testament. The difference that do exist, though, I think can be explained in a number of ways. First of all, there's a change in subject matter. Second, Peter is warning you about false teaching and telling you, be diligent, persevere, and have hope in the second coming of Christ. First, Peter talks about uh, the glory of God in the midst of suffering. Well, those are two very different subject matters. And so the subject matters themselves would indicate that the style would probably be different. Furthermore, Second Peter is probably written closer to the time of Peter's death. So there's a difference in time. There's a difference in circumstances. And I think this is the major point. And my good friend David Allen has also argued this very strongly. What about the part played by an amanuensis, a secretary? You say, what do you mean, Danny? Well, go back. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter suggests very strongly that Sylvanus or Silas was the amanuensis of this letter. In other words, my reconstruction would be that, yes, it's 1 Peter is by Peter. But Peter dictates it to Silas. And Silas, with a degree of freedom... Writes down the content that we find then in First Peter. So it's Peter's content, but it's in the style of Silas. On the other hand, second Peter does not say anything at all about an amanuensis. So it might be that the difference is explained between the fact that Silas was actually the secretary for First Peter, but Peter himself, who by the way, was a city boy, no. He was a country boy from Galilee who may not have been quite as sophisticated in his writing style as was Silas. And therefore, that would explain the difference in vocabulary, uh, the difference in style, the difference in tone. And therefore, that would explain why there is a real difference in the style of writing between First Peter and Second Peter. So my last four lines there, when a careful study and a balanced investigation is made. There's no compelling reason for rejecting 2 Peter as genuine. I believe the letter should be viewed as authentic and that it indeed comes from the apostle whose name it carries. And if you want a really good defense... Of the authenticity of Second Peter, let me commend to you Tom Schreiner's commentary uh, on First and Second Peter and Jude. That's in the New American Commentary. I think he does a stellar job in providing a good, strong, uh, reasonable defense for Peter as the author of Second Peter. So, for most of us, that's not a big deal. But if you go to Bible college or university or seminary, you will be introduced to the fact that that's a major issue among more skeptical scholars. So, without the date. Well, the second epistle appears to have been written shortly after the first and from the same location, probably from Rome. Proper assignment then is around A.D. 65 or 66 during the latter part of the reign of the infamous Roman emperor by the name of Nero and toward the end of Peter's life. As I alluded to a moment ago, church tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down in the latter part of the reign of Nero. He commits suicide in A.D. 68, so it would have to be before then 65, 66, 67 as a possibility are uh, reasonable years in which to date the writing of this book. Recipients, the reference in 2 Peter 3, 1 to the present epistle as the second letter would indicate that the recipients were the same believers who had been addressed in First Peter as well. So the audience of First Peter is also the audience of Second Peter as well. Theme, as we said earlier, a variety of subjects is discussed in Second Peter. But all reaffirm the truthfulness of the apostolic witness and the need to be forewarned of the imminent danger of the testimony of the teaching of false teachers. Furthermore, the book concludes with an eschatological note designed to encourage and fortify the faith of these believers. So Second Peter is a short letter of just 61 verses, just three chapters. Its message, however, is both concise and clear. Beware of false teachers, theological error, moral corruption, as we live in the last days before Jesus comes again. And so he's encouraging spiritual growth, chapter 1. He is countering false teachers, chapter two. He is fostering watchfulness in light of our Lord's certain return in chapter three. Page five then, I give you some characteristics of false teachers. Some characteristics of the faithful teachers, and you can just see that there is a stark contrast. And the false teachers in Second Peter in particular are said to be controlled by the flesh. They're immoral. They're slaves of sin. They starve sinners, and therefore their destination is clearly the lake of fire. In contrast... Faithful teachers are controlled by the Spirit. They live morally and upright. They are slaves, yes, but of the Savior, not sin. They don't starve sinners. They feed sinners. And their destination is antithetical to that of the false teachers. They are headed for heaven. Now, what about this relationship of 2 Peter and the book of Jude? And I'll address that equally uh, next week, or at least in a different kind of a way. But let's just know. There is a close relationship between 2 Peter and the book of Jude. Indeed, there is striking resemblances between 2 Peter 2, 1 through 18, chapter 3, 1 through 3, and Jude 4 through 13, and Jude 16 through 18. So if there is this very strong commonality between the two books, how do you explain it? Well, there are four possibilities. One, Jude is dependent upon Second Peter. That is, Jude borrowed from Second Peter. Secondly, Second Peter is dependent upon Jude, and Peter borrowed from Jude. Third, both letters were dependent upon a common source. There was a common source that we don't have any longer. Both Peter and Jude draw from it. Or fourth, there is a common authorship, but no one that I know of has ever argued for number four. The majority view is that Second Peter is dependent upon Jude. In other words, since Jude is shorter, there seems to be no reason to suppose that it would have been published after Second Peter, i.e., we don't need it uh, because all the common points have been covered. Some also argue that Jude is more harsh and that Second Peter comes along, bless his heart, and he softens things. He's more pastoral. He's more gentle. He's a nicer guy than Jude. Jude then makes use also of some apocryphal material that caused some people a concern. Peter corrects that problem and he kicks it out. However, it is certainly conceivable that Jude may have used Second Peter. Why? To meet his precise, specific, particular situation. First of all, just because it is shorter does not mean that Jude could not have used the pertinent parts and adapted them to suit his own purpose. Furthermore, it is also possible that Jude saw the need to adopt a stronger approach. Why? Because that which Peter warned about, here come the false teachers. Jude now realizes they're here. And the situation is more acute. The situation is more dire. The situation is more desperate. And therefore, as a result of that, he is much stronger in his approach. He is much more condemning in his words because the threat of false teachers has grown even stronger. Therefore. In my judgment, this is, and I have a minority view here, it is quite probable that Jude does make a reference to Second Peter. This seems clear in Jude 17, which exhorts the readers to what? Remember the apostles' predictions. And the words cited occur almost verbatim from where? Second Peter 3, 3. So, it seems to me that Jude is experiencing what Peter prophesied. Peter said false prophets were coming, and Jude says top of page six, they are here. And therefore that would also explain the harsher tone of Jude. And so I personally believe, contrary to what the majority think, that first Peter came, or second Peter came first, he says the false teachers are coming, Jude says, watch out, they're here, and Peter told you this, and so he cites second Peter kind of to say, look, the apostle promised it was going to happen, My goodness, what he said has come to fruition. And so comparing 1st and 2nd Peter as we prepare to look at our text. 1st Peter, the major focus is hope in the midst of suffering. 2nd Peter says, watch out for false teaching and its practices. 1st Peter, when it comes to Christ, talks about the sufferings of Christ for our salvation and the wonderful example that he set for us in his life. Second Peter, though, says, let's talk about the glory of Christ and the consummation of history when he comes again. First Peter says, look, the day of salvation when Christ suffered, died and rose from the dead is my focus. Second Peter says, not the day of salvation, but the day of the Lord when Christ returns in judgment. First Peter says you be encouraged in your present trials. Second Peter says you better be careful of future judgment. First Peter says we need hope to face our trials. Second Peter says we need full knowledge so that we can face error. First Peter does have some similarities to Paul, including Ephesians and Colossians. Second Peter, as we mentioned a moment ago, has some almost identical similarities between it and the book of Jude. So on page seven, I gave you, as I have for each of our studies, an outline of the book, uh, noting the major uh, emphases that you find there. Go with me then to page 8, and let's talk about, in this last part of our study tonight, until then, Jesus coming again, so what should I do? You know, humans are um, impatient. We hate to wait. We want what we want now, and we want what we want when we want it. However... You and I know, if you've been around for any time at all, that life doesn't work that way. In fact, whether you want to be or not, you have to learn to be patient. Well, the early church wanted Jesus to come again. And they wanted Jesus to come again soon. They wanted him to come again quickly. And indeed, they were very interested in that question. But Peter comes along and says, look, scoffers may say now that there's been some time delay, he's not coming. And unbelievers may likewise be cynical and cast aspersion on you and me for having hope in his coming. But Peter says, look, the Lord is going to come back. You can count on it. You have his word. But until he comes again, what do you and I need to be doing? And he addresses that question beautifully in the last verses of chapter 4. And basically, he builds his argument around four imperative statements that you find in verse 14 through verse 18. Let me show them to you, and then we'll walk through the text quickly. First of all, he says, until then, be diligent. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, here's the first imperative, be diligent. Secondly, in verse 15, he says, consider, consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Number three, verse 17, beware. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. And then number four, he ends the book like he begins the book, grow, but grow. In the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the outline. First of all, be diligent. To do what? Maintain certain priorities. Secondly, consider or be devoted to meditate on our Lord's, our Master's patience. Thirdly, you want to what? Beware. Be determined then. To mark your position so that you stand where you need to stand, doctrinally and theologically. And then finally, you want to grow. And how do you grow? By being dedicated, and in particular, to magnifying the praise of God. So let's walk through this quickly together. Number one, be diligent to maintain certain priorities. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these Things. Now, the therefore is therefore a reason, and it takes us back to the previous verses in verse 10 through 13. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. I have a question. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In light of the fact that God is going to destroy this world, these temporal things are not going to last, what should that, uh, how should that affect you? What difference should that make in your life as you seek to conduct yourself in holy conduct and in godliness? Well, he begins, verse 12, you're looking for, And hastening the coming of the day of God, just another way of saying the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking. So did you see it? You have the word looking in verse 12. You have the word look in verse 13, and you have the word again looking there in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, looking forward to what things? That new heaven and that new earth, which we will inherit when the old order is burned up and destroyed. So what is it then that I should do in light of this looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth? Well, you need to be diligent. You don't need to be a date setter. You don't need to be an antichrist, false prophet, uh, namer. You simply need to be diligent, hardworking. We get so the, the revised standard says, "Be zealous" or "Do your best to do what to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless." So you see the outline. I'm to be diligent to maintain certain priorities in light of the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. What are the things I should pursue? First of all, I should pursue peace. And secondly, I should pursue purity. Be found in him in peace. Of course, he does not really specify the kind of peace here we know from Paul's writings that in Romans 5, 1, there is that peace with God. In Philippians 4, there is that peace of God. I think he has it in mind in its holistic sense. You should pursue to have a peace relationship with God, being reconciled to Him. And likewise, you should seek peace in your daily life. But even more so, in the midst of the challenges that false teachers present, you have that internal peace that comes as you look forward to the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. But not only did you, should you pursue peace, but also you should pursue purity. For he says there, you are to be found, how? Without spot and blameless. By the way, a theme that he had also addressed in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 as well. So there are certain priorities that you and I should maintain as we look forward to his coming again and the new heaven the new earth peace and purity secondly you should also be devoted to meditate on our master's patience he almost anticipates the question that is in chapter two chapter three the early part about these scoffers who say well where is this coming he's been gone a while now hasn't he you guys said he was coming again you said he could come at any time well just where is he And, of course, he tells us earlier, well, you understand something, uh, a day with the Lord or a thousand years with you and me is like a day with the Lord. So he's not in a hurry. Uh, If he comes, you know, at the end of the week, that's seven thousand years, according to divine reckoning of time. But let's just put things in context here. And he says, look, consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. In other words, why is he delaying his coming? Well, second Peter Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 9 helps clarify that as well. Look at it. It's uh, uh, an evangelistic verse that many of us know well. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is the Lord patient? Well, first of all, it expresses his heart. His heart is what? The desire to see sinners saved. And so he's not waiting because he can't come back. He's not waiting because he's disinterested. He is waiting because he is patient to allow the process of salvation to run as long and as far as it can in terms of bringing people into his kingdom. Furthermore, he informs us there as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So I'm not saying anything that's any different. He also talked about the patience of the Lord, the long-suffering of the Lord, the fact that the Lord himself delayed his coming so that others might come into his kingdom. And so what do you learn from his long-sufferingness? You learn of his great heart for the souls of lost men and women. But secondly, time also exposes the heretics. In other words, as I often say to folks when they're listening to certain kinds of teachers, be patient, wait, listen for a while. Don't jump on the bandwagon after hearing a guy teach one time. What is the teaching that you find over the long haul? What do you find over the duration of the ministry? And here he says, look, Peter also or Paul also talked about in his epistles And he spoke in them of these things. What kind of things? The things of our Lord's patience in terms of salvation. The fact that there is indeed going to be a coming again and a day of the Lord. So he himself also spoke in them of these things. And then he makes this unbelievable honest admission. Are some things hard to understand? Now, notice very carefully what he doesn't say. Does he say that Paul wrote things that were impossible to understand? No. No. Is Paul sometimes um, deep? Yes. Is Paul sometimes tough? Yes. But does Paul write anything under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit that would be unprofitable, unfathomable, that you would not be able to comprehend? Absolutely not. If 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 you agreed with that. Then you'd have to say that God did a sorry job in inspiring Paul to write stuff that we will never learn, understand, or be able to comprehend. No. Tough, yes. Can you sometimes get what Paul is at with just a very superficial, shallow kind of namby-pamby devotional reading? No. That's why some of our churches will throw their hands and say, well, I just don't understand Paul. Well, it's because you're sorry and lazy. and You don't study like you ought. You're welcome. But that's really true. Some people just read it on the surface. They don't take the time to stop, meditate, dig in, and really search out what is there. And so, yes, granted, some of the things he says are hard to understand. And then look at the indictment, which, number one, untaught. And number two, unstable. It means to be without a foundation. In other words, they've not laid a good, healthy doctrinal foundation. So untaught and unstable people twist. And the word means to abuse it. It has the idea of torturing in certain contexts. In fact, one commentator said it was a word sometimes used when you put someone on the rack and torture them. They take the word of God. And they put it on the torture rack and they stretch it out all out of proportion to what it really is saying and what it really means. Usually they are the Jesus plus the Bible plus people who argue that you need something more than the scriptures themselves to understand the deeper things of God. And he says, I'll tell you something, people that take the word of God and twist it, stretch it. Torture it so that it no longer says what it clearly says. Number one, they are untaught. Number two, they are without foundation. They are unstable. And what do they do? They do this to their own destruction, their own damnation, as they also do the rest of the Scriptures. Now, that last phrase, those of you, Kai, when he had me as a teacher of New Testament will tell you that I pointed out that 2 Peter 3.16 is very crucial in terms of the doctrine of inspiration for the New Testament. Because here you have Peter saying, what of Paul's letters? They take Paul's letters, they're untaught, they're unstable, they twist them to their own destruction as they do what? The rest of the Scriptures. What is he calling the writings of Paul? Scripture. Scripture. And so here you have a clear affirmation by another apostle of the authoritative nature of the writings of one apostle Paul. The rest of the scriptures, they mess up just like they do the scriptures that were penned by Paul. So he says, first of all, there in verse 16, uh, in verse 15, it expresses his heart. It exposes the heretic. Now, thirdly. Be determined then to mark your position, remember what you were taught, remain where you stand. He says in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, I know what beforehand? That false teachers are coming, that false teachers will be untaught, that false teachers will be unstable, that false teachers will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Since you know these things beforehand, beware, be on guard, lest you also fall from your own Fixedness, your own steadfastness, your own stable place where you have taken your stand. I like what Michael Green said in his commentary. It is not surprising that he who has been changed by the grace of God into a man of rock. You are Peter, rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Is not surprising that the one changed by the grace of God into a man of rock should be so concerned about doctrinal stability. And so just as he has become one who is stable by the very name that Jesus gave him, you likewise must be stable. Otherwise, you can be led away with the error of the wickedness. So be determined to mark your position. Remain where you stand. And then finally, he says you be dedicated to magnify God's praise Verse uh, 18, but grow. It's a present imperative. Speaks of continuous action. The word beware was a present imperative. Speaks of continuous action. Grow. In what, Peter? In the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even though it's his conclusion, it is appropriate uh, commentary to what he just said, as you do. As you grow in the grace of God, as you grow in the knowledge of God, as you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then to him will be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So you want to bring glory to his name, grow in his grace. You want to bring praises to his name, then grow in your knowledge of him. And to do so is to be the kind of person until then. Until he comes again and ushers us into that new heaven, that new earth. And as John also adds in Revelation 21, that wonderful new Jerusalem. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Second Peter. I thank you that it is a book of hope as well as warning. Hope in your coming again. A warning concerning false teaching. Well, if we had walked our way through the three chapters, we would have seen that the first place they got it wrong was the person of Jesus Christ. They denied his deity. Secondly, they got it wrong in his work. They denied his work of atonement. And because they got it wrong in terms of who he is and what he did, they also got it wrong in terms of the doctrine of salvation. They think that you are made right with God by works. And also because of their... The emphasizing and misunderstanding of the glory of the Son. Some even began to question whether he was coming again, whether or not he would even keep his word. Lord, help us this day to recognize the need to grow, both in grace and in knowledge, that we might not be led astray, that we might not move away from our steadfastness, and that we would indeed be able to tell the difference between truth and error, Right teaching and wrong teaching, all for the glory of God. May that be the kind of people we are until then, until you come again. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we will look at the book of Jude. Thank you so much. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.